Ah, yes, very good afternoon on this Thursday, also known as Friday Junior. Oh, we're almost there. The weekend is this close. It's this close. And coming up, the Premier giving an update on the province's vaccine rollout. We're going to join that press conference for reporters' questions coming up in roughly the next 10, 12 minutes or so. So stand by for that. And speaking of vaccines, there is breaking news when it comes to the vaccines on this Thursday afternoon. Might have heard Danny just mention this in the news. But the United States plans to send some roughly 4 million doses of AstraZeneca that it's not using. As a matter of fact, it hasn't even been approved there in the States, AstraZeneca. They're going to ship that to both us here in Canada and Mexico. Mexico will receive roughly 2.5 million doses. We're going to get the other uh, 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca. Now, that's according to a U.S. government official who also added, quote, this virus has no borders and we will only put this virus behind us if we are helping our global partners. And this, of course, is something that Doug Ford publicly asked for. You remember a few weeks back asking uh, the U.S. and I think he said it in particular, the uh, Pfizer factory in Michigan asking whether or not maybe they could uh, help out their neighbors here to the north. And there were also reports yesterday that Canada had made an official request to the White House for vaccine help. So lots of news on the vaccine front this afternoon. We're going to have much more on that ahead. But first, uh, the province has also announced that Ottawa will be moving back to red zone, back to the red zone as a result of worsening COVID trends. And that takes effect in the nation's capital as of midnight tonight. Meanwhile, we still await word here for us in Toronto. Many business owners concerned that they just won't make it through a a third wave. It really is a do or die moment for a lot of businesses, including in particular those in the hospitality industry and the restaurant business. George Bozikas is the owner of Hendricks and Youngster 8. He is on the line and joins us now for more on this here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. George, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Uh, first off, I understand that you were set to meet with the city today. Has that meeting happened? I did. I, I spoke with uh, my uh, city councillor and I expressed my concerns about some decisions that are being made at the city level, uh, primarily. Uh, red zone being 10 people versus, for example, 10% uh, and so on and so forth. Um, you take a restaurant that sits 30 people and you put 10 people inside and you have a 33% occupancy. You take a restaurant the size of mine, which is just under 300 people, um, and you put 10 people inside and uh, it's all worth opening. And uh, was that received well, that message uh, here today? It was. I mean, she said she would table it at the next meeting. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, she also admitted that, you know, certain decisions are being made above her pay level and uh, she's being advised that this is the way it is. And she's being advised that it's being implemented last minute. So no heads up, no nothing. All right. I want to get to that in just a second. But did you get any sort of uh, inkling as to uh, we're expecting to hear from the Ontario government tomorrow when it comes to uh, Toronto? Yesterday, of course, her top doctor, Dr. Eileen Davila, indicated that she wanted to see the city move to kind of a modified gray, not really right back to the red zone, as you're talking about, uh, George. So have you been given any sort of uh, indication as to uh, what the coming weeks are going to look like? Uh, Unfortunately not. I know, and I've predicted this from 
last December, maybe November even, that I don't see restaurants really reopening in Toronto before patio season. And they're going to, the way they phased us out, they're going to phase us back in is what I'm expecting. And so far I haven't been proven wrong. All right. And is that enough uh, waiting for patio season for a lot of Toronto restaurants? I mean, as we talk about it and we're sitting, it looks like on the cusp or the beginning of a third wave now of COVID of the uh, pandemic is this really, as I mentioned a second ago, kind of a do-or-die moment and situation for a lot of restaurants? Absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there are many businesses out there that uh, are waiting for government subsidies to end so they can close their doors. Meanwhile, uh, they're not declaring bankruptcy so they can take advantage of the benefits. So there's a lot of businesses out there that are already dead. We just don't know it. And uh, do you have any idea, like, uh, the percentage of, I mean, it seems to me, and uh, listen, it's just been uh, really disheartening and saddening to watch uh, some of our, and uh, we've talked about this uh, for months on end during the pandemic over the last year, just how many of our favorite restaurants, a lot of iconic names in the city that have uh, closed their doors, sadly, uh, for good. Do you have any sort of idea as to uh, how many more restaurants uh, we might see close their doors uh, for good in the uh, coming days and weeks? I'm willing to guess, and again, it's a guess, that um, probably another 25 to 30% will end up closing or, or slated to close. We just don't know about it yet. And just how tired, just how exhausted is everybody in the restaurant and the hospitality industry? I mean, how are you doing, George? How are you coping uh, through all of this? Um, well, I, I have my employees calling me on a regular basis. Uh, they're looking for some insight, which unfortunately I don't have. Uh, people have uh, had to make decisions on how to pay rent, on how to pay, how to put food on the table. Uh, you know, living in downtown Toronto, if they're getting the nine hundred dollars every two weeks, eighteen hundred dollars a month, uh, most uh, one bedroom in Toronto is about two thousand dollars. So that they fall short of that. Um, they're stressed. They want to get out. There's COVID fatigue. Um, there's a lot of people that are drinking. There's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, uh, abusing uh, drug abuse. I've even heard instances of some people resorting to prostitution to pay the bills. And uh, on top of that, and uh, when we talk about uh, workers and how this has uh, affected them, uh, we also understand that they are not included in phase two of Ontario's uh, COVID vaccination distribution uh, plan. So on top of all those other hardships you just uh, mentioned, they're still not in line to get the uh, vaccine, even if the uh, restaurant business was to uh, reopen for in-house dining. Correct. This is just a perfect example of the government speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And you just don't know who to believe anymore. Uh, high risk, uh, critical retail workers, grocery and pharmacies. I'm reading off the list published by the government. Then low risk retail. We're considered high risk. And that's why we've been closed down. But we're nowhere to be seen. Are we saying that we're going to uh, allow the industry to collapse? Or are we going to become extinct? And to that end, uh, George, let, let me ask you this. I mean, how long do you think it's going to take uh, for the restaurant industry and the restaurant scene in the city to fully recover from what we've seen the uh, last year, the last 12 months uh, and counting? Because with the amount of restaurants that have already closed, those that might uh, close in the coming weeks, as you indicate, I mean, this is just not something that is going to, you flip a switch and you turn, turn around overnight. Absolutely right. Uh, what I believe is that... Um, the media 
has put the fear of God into everybody. And that even when restaurants reopen, there's going to be that segment that just can't wait to go and have a drink and grab a bite to eat. There's definitely a lot of those people. But then there's a lot of other people that uh, are still just afraid to get out of the house. And now it's becoming a mental issue on top of everything else. Uh, I know of somebody specific, a friend of mine, whose wife will not only not leave the house, but she won't have anybody over to the house. And they're not in the 80s. They're in their 40s. So when you're dealing with, with, with mental issues now, only God knows. Only God knows how long this will take. All right. Well, listen, George, I really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much uh, for coming on. It goes without saying. We will uh, continue to watch and to uh, cover this story and certainly uh, wish you and everybody in the hospitality, the restaurant industry, uh, the very best in the coming days and weeks. Excellent, Jeff. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. There goes a George Pazinkas. He's the owner of Hendrix on Young Street. I'll drive down in my pickup truck and get those vaccines myself. Paraphrasing, but that was the Premier Doug Ford just a moment ago, as you heard right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, when he heard the news that the U.S. will indeed be sending 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to us here in Canada in short order. And uh, listen, Mary, I mean... The more, the better. Obviously, when it comes to the uh, vaccine, uh, we need the uh, supply. But it is kind of curious that uh, the U.S. is producing AstraZeneca, yet not uh, using it. It hasn't been approved there. Yeah. So he got a kind of, I mean, I don't want to make anybody worried or concerned, but yeah, that, a day or so ago, the Biden administration was saying, we got to keep what we've got and we're going to, you know, give those uh, to the folks on the arms here in America. Now, all of a sudden, oh, uh, we, we've got lots to spare. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, it's going to be a question I want to ask Dr. Samantha Hill when she joins us uh, next hour, because uh, we're going to talk about uh, not only this, but the uh, vaccination rollout as a whole and uh, the third wave and where uh, Toronto uh, might be going. Uh, that is the other thing the premier was uh, asked. I'm not so sure we got the clearest of uh, answers, but uh, to me, out of that press conference, uh, what really stood out was the first question about modifications to the gray zone. As we know, Dr. Davila here in Toronto said that that's what she is recommending, doesn't want to see us go right to red, to the red zone, but uh, a modified gray zone. And what we got from the premier when he was asked about that and what it looks like is uh, basically just said that uh, he's in favor of people, Mary, getting outdoors. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to leadership and dealing with big issues, you need to make some sort of changes to see a change. And we've been following along these guidelines and holding to this for so long. And, you know, we hear it. We've heard it just today. You know, businesses, people, families, kids, seniors, they're all getting frustrated. And it's just, you know, there's got to be some other solutions. There's got to be some ways to, you know, trust that people are going to do the right thing because they are concerned about their own health and the health of their loved ones. Yeah, for sure. It's just, uh, you know, everybody's kind of left wondering uh, when we're going to move out of a gray and if it's going to be now a modified gray. What does that mean exactly? What does it look like? Uh, Maybe they're all huddled, uh, those in the science table, the health table, still trying to figure that out uh, as we await uh, word of this. uh, We're expecting it uh, tomorrow where Toronto is heading. And add into the mix as well the uh, breaking news this afternoon that the nation's capital, Ottawa, they're actually getting bumped up as of midnight tonight, right, Mary? They're moving in back into the red zone because of uh, concerns about the uh, numbers there. 
Yeah, and it feels like Toronto, I mean, I don't mean to make light of this serious situation, but I will for a second. We're left out of the party. Like, we are the last on the list, and it just seems like there's more frustration growing and growing. And, and, and Toronto is a big place with a lot of people and a lot of businesses and a lot of people hurting, a lot of people really feeling the, the lockdown and the pain in many different ways. And all they want is some answers and they want some yeah. clarity. Again, hopefully we're going to get some of that uh, tomorrow. And of course, we will have it for you when it happens right here on Global News Radio. Meantime, speaking of businesses, how about this? A woman in the Netherlands has just become the first person ever to receive a tattoo remotely. That's right. It was done by a tattoo artist who was some 300 miles away. And for more on this, pretty interesting, Jacqueline Pavan joins us. She's the owner of Storm Horse Tattoo. And Jacqueline joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jacqueline, how are you this afternoon? Hi, Jeff. I'm doing great. How okay. Are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, how exactly was this accomplished? Uh, I understand it was through the use of a uh, robot, it's like a robotic arm. It's amazing. I can't believe they did it. Yeah, it's a robotic arm that they invented in six weeks, and it allowed a tattoo artist in UK, a very skilled gentleman, to be able to tattoo um, a small tattoo, but it happened over 5G internet and robotics. She was in the Netherlands, so we're living in the future. The future is now. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, as a tattoo artist and the owner of a tattoo shop, just like how difficult, how tough would this be to do this uh, remotely for an artist uh, using, I, I take it, just kind of like uh, a joystick? It looks like he is maybe using a tattoo machine that they've modified to read um, his movements and then translate all that data and do it on the client over there. I think it'd be incredibly difficult. And I think that the inventors sort of realized how tough tattooing actually is when they set out to do this because one of the things tattooing strength is it's face-to-face, -face, we're person-to-person, -person. and to have your client just be on a screen hundreds of kilometers away and you're just interacting with, um, I'm not even quite sure what he's tattooing on to make it happen digitally like that i think it's incredibly difficult it's it's difficult in person yeah. <laughs> uh, like we practice a lot but uh to do it through a robot is uh, i think another feat now was this all because of the uh, pandemic and obviously the demand for tattoos uh, remains and that this is a way to do it uh, safely they're touting it as that as a way to tattoo pretty much i guess anybody in the world there's no face-to-face -face contact uh, you definitely are practicing social distancing and um, the way of tattooing in the pandemic. I don't know if it's going to go this way for sure. <laughs> well, do you think that this is the future of the business? Because to your point about being face to face, I mean, isn't that a part of, uh, I don't know, the process or the uh, allure of getting a tattoo is that face to face interaction, getting to know your, your artist. People go to great lengths to pick a, a tattoo artist, as you well know, and really work on a design personally with the artist. I don't think it will be the future. It's funny, this, this concept of a robot replacing tattoo artists, I feel like, has come up many times. And while I've been tattooing, I've been tattooing for 20 years. And it's very interesting to see now that there's robots capable of it. But I feel like they can't work their way around the elbow joint or through an armpit if a client squirms or moves like the gal in the video is is kind of 
for lack of a better word, she is strapped down so that she doesn't move. Um, is there anybody there to check if she's okay, if she needs a bathroom break, if she needs a sip of water? Like, um, there's a lot more to even just the art of it. Like, there's a human designing the piece, and it it's a very human-centered activity. So whether – I know we're all looking for different ways to – still do the things that we love. Like I know I have clients still writing me being like, when are you opening? I can't wait to get a tattoo, which is lovely. But uh, to have this kind of technology, is it accessible? Does it replace art? I don't think it replaces what an actual artist can do on a lot of levels. All right. But is there the opportunity for people who might want a certain tattoo from a uh, prolific tattoo artist that they wouldn't be able to either travel to or maybe even afford to have them do it, that all of a sudden you could download the tattoo uh, into a, a computer and a robotic arm could, you know, reproduce uh, that much sought after tattoo by that very artist uh, just through a download? Wow. that I They kind of did that in this video where the artist had designed a piece so we designed a custom piece for um this client and it was just a small piece about the size of a loony and something like that maybe that's actually possible but are you getting the full scope of an artist's skills are you getting the full package i think it's more of a bit of a novelty like and i'm curious how many people would trust a robot like (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, the inventor did go under the needle. He got a tattoo himself, which kudos to him. The The gal who did it is very brave. Um, but whether a downloadable tattoo, I don't know if there's, I think it's a cool novelty. Um, but tattooing is, is broad and it's an old art form. And I feel that um, this would be a fun thing, but to get your, entire body done like that in downloadable tattoos Mm, i'm gonna say no (laughs) (laughs) all right well the future will uh determine uh what happens i guess and having said that uh, before i let you go i'd be remiss if i did not ask you how are things uh with you uh, in the business and for the tattoo community uh at large obviously you know like many other businesses this has been a a tough time a, a tough road with the pandemic it has been a tough road. My Storm Horse tattoos in Toronto, so we're in the gray zone, and that means tattoo studios still have to remain closed. And we've been closed since November 22nd, so it's four months now. It's um, nobody's business plan included that, and tattoo shops can open when we enter the red zone, and we just wait and see and hope for the announcements to come through. We we can't wait to get tattooing again. Um, I'm pretty sure I can speak for. All tattoo artists, we we miss our clients, we miss the art form, and um, and we're just we're waiting. We can't wait. All and right. We, well, like, oh, sorry, we would like not to wait anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Jacqueline, I really appreciate the time with us uh, this afternoon, and appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, stay well. There's a Jacqueline Pavan, owner of Storm Horse Tattoo. With news from the states that AstraZeneca is coming our way, one and a half million doses the U.S. will ship here to Canada in the next uh, little while. That's the uh, breaking news as, of course, uh, vaccination uh, rollout in the states going much, uh, I don't know if smoother is the right word, but they're certainly getting more vaccine out there and they've got more supply right now. So much so that in Southern California, they have announced, how about this? 
the theme parks there in SoCal, they are set to open next month. But how about this? With one caveat, thrill seekers will be forced to bite their tongues before they get on the uh, roller coasters. The California Attractions and Parks Association is behind a plan that would, how about this, encourage roller coaster riders to remain silent when you are in the air to somehow try to stop the spread of coronavirus because, as we know, it's through moisture droplets uh, in the air. But uh, my question, Mary, is... uh, I don't know when the last time it was you were on a roller coaster, but from what I remember, that's kind of involuntary, the screaming. It just sort of happens. Right, exactly. Uh, good luck with that, you know. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the theme park, and don't be human here, because uh, there's no screaming on the rides. There's no singing, no shouting, no heavy breathing, and no raising of one's voice. But uh, otherwise, sit back, relax, uh, and enjoy the ride. Yeah, have a great time. Just do it in silence, if you could, please. So I wonder if they're going to actually erect a a sign. If you remember, you know, you go to Canada's uh, Wonderland and you must be this tall to get on this ride. And plus the uh, next sign will be, please don't scream or say anything either. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. I, I, I get it. I understand it. I wear the masks and all of that. Right. But, uh, you know, are the signs going to say something like, you know, please secure all loose articles and shut your mouth? Uh, how are they going to do it? <laughs> Tips for non-screaming. Know. How do you do that? Just yeah. close your mouth, hold your breath. It's a good point, Dave. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like screaming in space. If you scream in space, does anybody hear? Yeah, right. I guess not. Same thing here. Please scream, but make sure nobody uh, like, hears. Or do you like put your shirt over here and just scream in your shirt? Maybe, I don't know, but uh, Disneyland, Universal Studios, Six Flags, they're all set to reopen next month with limited capacity, but yes, patrons are being warned to please keep their excitement to a dull roar, to a minimum, to themselves. So, uh, I don't, by the way, Mary, are you like a big roller coaster person? I love roller coasters. I love them. Uh, funny quick story. I love roller coasters. I was screaming on roller coasters. And I went on one when I was younger with my sister. And the ride's slowing down, and I'm still screaming. And she's looking at me. She's like, uh, what? Huh? What's going on? And the roller coaster had looped right into a bee. And the bee stung me in my chest because I had a uh, tank top on. No. And I was <laughs> screaming because the bee just stung me on the loop-de-loop. first of all what are the chances yes exactly and uh, secondly everybody's like the ride's over the thrill is gone the thrill is done what what is your problem why are you still screaming exactly why is she still screaming i got stung by me and i I couldn't you can see the stinger there so i had proof oh did you know it immediately when that happened well i thought wow, something's going on. And I felt this pain. And then I looked down and I saw the bee and uh, it, it, the bee actually blew away in the loop to loop and the stinger was still stuck there. I thought, thank goodness the stinger's still there and the people can see, look, there's the evidence. Uh, but yeah, it was the craziest thing. Oh Crazy. my goodness. That, that's not one of the warnings when you get on a roller coaster. I, I've never like heard of that before. yeah there you go okay uh, in the meantime a a new report uh, from the canadian center for policy alternatives is out today and it is warning about the future of child care in this country now the report says that even though daycare fees have been rising during the pandemic many daycares are actually closing and for more on this we're joined now by david mcdonald senior economist with the canadian center for policy alternatives he joins us here now on global news radio 640 toronto david good afternoon 
Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here as always. Uh, much to discuss on this. And let's start with these rising fees, if we could. Uh, the cost of daycare, of course, is an issue for many families. Just uh, how much have fees been increasing? Do we know? And do we know why? Yeah, so in 27 of the 37 cities we surveyed, we did see uh, increases in fees. Now, some of those increases were particularly large in some of the GTA cities, Brampton and Mississauga. Uh, there, we're seeing 15 to 20, 21% increases in fees in those cities. And that's because uh, in those cities, there was a fee reduction program that gave parents a flat amount every month to help cover uh, child care fees or reduce the fees that they owed. And those programs ended. And so you see a huge jump in fees compared to 2019 because of the end of those programs. Um, Richmond Hill saw an increase of uh, 8%. Uh, the other GTA CDs were fairly muted. Um, but, uh, you know, across the board, it's not uncommon to see fees increasing in, in a lot of cities, despite the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. So these this fee increase had nothing to do with additional costs such as PPE and uh, that, that sort of thing and maybe uh, reduced capacity at daycares because of the pandemic? No, it doesn't appear so. The big increases in, in Brampton and Mississauga are entirely due to the cancellation of the fee reduction programs in those, in those uh, municipalities. Um, but you bring up an important point, which is there's been a huge reduction, and this is particularly in the GTA. I mean, it's happening across the country, but it's particularly severe in the GTA, um, is a huge reduction in people sending their kids to, to daycares. Uh, you know, a reduction in the number of kids going to daycare and enrollment of about 50% across many of the GTA cities. Higher in Markham, 60% in Markham, a little bit lower in Oakville, about 40% in Oakville. But these are extremely high. And so um, one of the real dangers for centers now is that, you know, this survey was taken in the fall, in the, over several months in the fall, prior to the round of lockdowns around January, prior to the, the new round of lockdowns that, that's, you know, likely to start in, in, in the coming weeks. And, you know, it's very difficult when you're a center or, or a family home, heavily reliant on fees to cover your costs. Uh, it's not the way it is everywhere, but it's the way it is in Ontario. Uh, and half the kids aren't there anymore. Um, and so, I mean, one of the big concerns going uh, into the fall when we're hopefully vaccinated and people hopefully have got jobs again um, is that they may go back to their childcare and say, OK, you know, I've got, I've got to go to work now and here's, you know, here's my kid for the day. Uh, and it's not open anymore, or uh, they can't find staff anymore because they laid the staff off for a year and a half, and those staff went and got other jobs. Um, during the fall, you know, we did see some center closures, although it wasn't widespread. Um, Ontario, or sorry, Toronto, like the, the, the city of Toronto proper, did see a fair amount of, of homes closing, licensed homes, uh, you know, almost 100 there. Um, so we're not seeing widespread closures, or we weren't in the fall. Um, and so the, the danger is that we will see it if this continues all the way through September and also that the centers won't be able to recall their staff because the staff will have gone elsewhere for other jobs. Well, I think you just touched on this a second ago, but what sort of impact will this have on families, uh, not only short term, but even right now? And who is this hurting in particular? Well, these big declines in enrollment um, happen in cities that have two features. One is a high unemployment rate. And the second is high fees. The GTA has both. Um, you know, the fees in Toronto, the city of Toronto proper, are the highest fees compared to any other city in the country in any age category. Um, you know, other cities, Oakville, Mississauga, have fees that aren't quite as high, but they are still consistently in the top five or ten in terms of fees of the 37 cities that we looked at. And so fees are very high, uh, and the unemployment hit was relatively high in, in, in Toronto and the GTA in particular. 
um, compared to other cities. And so it's a real double whammy. And uh, what it does is it, it really puts the, you know, really puts the centers and homes in, in serious financial straits. And you can think of families who, you know, lost work, took the kids out of daycare because they were concerned about safety um, or kids, other kids are staying at home. So they decide they'll pull their kids from daycare um, because other kids are staying home from school. They got to be home anyway. Uh, a lot of these parents uh, will likely want to return kids to daycare uh, when things have recovered and everything's opened up again. The problem is those spaces might not be there. And that's the real concern um, in, in Ontario. You know, if you compare this, say, to Quebec, where the $8 a day centers in Quebec have seen almost no decline in enrollment. Uh, in large part, it's because uh, some, in some places the unemployment rate hasn't, hasn't plummeted. Uh, sorry, employment hasn't plummeted as badly. But in large part, it's because it's just a lot cheaper. And so it's not nearly as much of a, a you know, financial decision just to keep your kids in care, even if you've lost your jobs or had your shifts reduced. All right. So if we have fees increasing and daycares uh, closing, what needs to be done here to rectify this situation? Do we need that government program? Do we need it renewed? Well, there was a government program as part of the Safe Restart Agreements. This was a batch of agreements that the federal government signed with the provinces in the fall, the summer, and implemented in the fall. There was a specific stream for childcare, um, in in large part to combat exactly this problem. But as it existed in the first months of the pandemic in 2020, where many of these centers were straight up closed, in this case, they're not they're not ordered to be closed. You know, it's not that they're ordering parents to take their kids out of daycare. This is just the decisions of parents based on their own circumstances. And so it, it likely appears that another round of support like that is probably necessary. Um, the federal government is very interested in uh, having a universal child care plan, and uh, they're planning on spending a lot of money in the next federal budget on a variety of things, one of which I think will certainly be child care. The trouble is if you want to expand the system, you need a system to expand in the first place. And that's one of the real concerns is that if, if there isn't money to maintain the sector as it exists and you see closures and big reductions in capacity, that it becomes very difficult for people to go back to work because those spaces aren't there. Um, and it also becomes very difficult to expand the system, make it more accessible to people so there's more spaces and, and shorter wait lists, uh, but also make it more affordable. It's tough to do that if the you know if you've lost half of the spaces in the GTA. Mm-hmm. So your findings here, the Canadian Center uh, for Policy Alternatives, your findings on daycare is this just another warning sign that we do indeed need something done on a national level when it comes to daycare, some sort of a program or national strategy. Yeah, certainly there's a, there's a long-term and a short-term picture. The short-term picture is this concerning decline in enrollment, which presumably uh, parents will put their kids back into care once they've got jobs and we've returned to some sense of normalcy, uh, if those spaces still exist. And that's the short-term problem. The long-term comparison between provinces, I think, yields a fairly consistent conclusion, which is that if you want affordable fees, uh, child care is cheapest in cities that are located in provinces, where the province provides an operational grant to centers and family care and sets the fees. Um, you know, eight, $8 a day in Quebec is the, is the best known system like that. Um, you know, 10 times cheaper than what you'd find uh, for a similar space in, in, uh, in Toronto. But it's not the only one. Uh, Manitoba, Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland just last year also set fees like this and then support, uh, support centers and family homes through operational grants. And so if that's, you know, if affordability is one of the goals of a new federal program, this setting fee approach with grants to providers is the most predictable way um, in the Canadian context to provide those affordable fees. 
All right, well, listen, an important discussion and some interesting findings. David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, appreciate it as always. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. Bye.